friends, welcome back. You may know that I've been catching the bus to work for six years now, except of course for that one year no one went anywhere. I am grateful for the many benefits of public transportation. One, I'm not where you are right now, driving, perhaps in traffic, shaking your head at the incomparable ignorance or blatant disregard of some drivers, and laughing at outrageous car decals. I don't have to worry about gas or insurance or parking, which at UH Manoa is either ridiculously expensive or prohibitively difficult to find, depending on whether you go the permit route, over $1,000 a year for faculty and staff, or the suck it up and look for street parking route. Either way, it is a losing game. Two, because each trip takes two or three buses, I get anywhere from four to six opportunities each day to have mini conversations or micro interactions with people that I'll probably never see again. Research says that these kinds of ephemeral contacts are actually really good for our brains and our well-being. With that in mind, maybe in the next episode, I'll introduce you to my favorite introvert-friendly conversation starters. And three, I get to visit Baker Dudes on Alakea Street at least once a week. If you haven't already had one of their pastries, you should put it on your to-do list, or rather your to-eat list. My office mates, Lindsay and Pohai, are addicted to their chocolate croissants. My friend Kili'i and I will happily eat anything they make. Kuin almonds, macadamia nut sticky buns, schnecken, cinnamon croissants, snickerdoodle cookies, banana bread, and on and on. However, one of my very favorite things about commuting by bus is, four, I get to birdwatch in downtown Honolulu. Now, I know that that doesn't sound like it should make sense, but it does because of Honolulu's resident population of the official bird of the city, the Manuoku, Gaigas Alba, the common white tern, also known as fairy tern, angel tern, and love tern. It turns out, though, that it actually should be called the white naughty because it is more closely related. Genealogy, man. It'll get you every time. Speaking of genealogy and taxonomy, let's take a closer look at names. The white naughty's species name, Alba, is pretty recognizable if you speak any Romance language, as it means white, and is the feminine form of Albus. Yes, as in Dumbledore, which means that Harry Potter's Hogwarts headmaster's name could be translated as White Bumblebee. I guess it makes sense, since one of the old names for Great Britain is Albion, meaning white or hill, referring to the chalk cliffs of Dover. And Dumbledore is really old and white. Yeah, sure, let's go with that. As far as the White Naughty's Hawaiian name goes, it's actually something that I don't know a lot about, other than it is a ni'ihau term that means bird of ku. As you probably know, ku is one of the four main male gods, the others being kane, kanaloa, and lono, each of whom have responsibilities in every aspect of daily life. Folks tend to forget that, and usually only talk about ku in reference to war. For example, Kamehameha inherited the feathered god Ku Kailimoku, Ku, the district snatcher, and was therefore victorious in every battle, which of course led to the unification or the colonization of the Hawaiian Islands under his rule. Try dropping that topic at your next family potluck, I dare you. Since Ku's name literally means 
upright, erect. His more mm, masculine attributes draw more attention, which is really too bad because people miss out on knowing him as a loving father and dedicated family man. Of course, there are other stories that showcase his darker side too. Many places throughout Hawaii retain mo'olalo ba'ku, but the two stories I'll tell you today come from Oahu, both from Kaneohe. More on that in a bit. Names are incredibly important, so let me point out one more interesting bit, which is the Manuoku's genus name, Gaigis, spelled G-Y-G-I-S. It honors the 7th century king Gaigis, spelled G-Y-G-E-S, of Lydia, which is now that part of Turkey, south of the Sea of Marmara, and east of the Aegean. Basically, if you're looking at a map of Turkey, it's on that left-hand side that we seem to only hear about in connection with Syrian refugees. Back in the day, though, Lydia was a big deal. The capital city, Sardis, was home to the fable writer Aesop, as well as the wealthy King Croesus, who is Gaigas's great-great-grandson. Gaigas seized the throne in the usual European way, killing the previous king and marrying his beautiful widow. He made his reign official by bribing the oracle at Delphi with silver and gold, and then went on a 38-year tear, stirring up wars with his neighbors throughout most of Asia Minor in the hopes of increasing his domain through conquest. He was so successful at being a ruthless warrior king that most Bible scholars agree that Gygus is the same person as Gog, one of two henchmen of the Apocalypse. Ezekiel spends two chapters, 38 and 39, prophesying against Gog's many atrocities. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you forth. In typical apocalyptic language, Revelation 20 says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, that is, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. In this way, God promises that he will rescue his people from all their oppressors. The first story about Ku that I'll share with you could be triggering for folks with unpleasant experiences of domestic violence, so please do skip ahead if you need to. However, before you go, here's a helpful spoiler alert. The woman gets far, far away from her abuser and is much happier afterward. If that isn't helpful, no worries. Just come back after the short musical interlude. Ready, break. Kane Ohebe is also known as Kawahau Kamano, the shark's mouth, because of its shape. On the north side, which is the left side if you're looking down towards the ocean from the Hirano Tunnel, is the open part of the mouth, formed by the Heia shoreline close to us and Mokapu on the other side. Heia is actually divided into two ahupua'a, Heia Kea on the north side and Heia Uli on the south side. They are separated by Pu'uma Eli'eli, which is important for this story. Back when the gods, small g, lived among us as people, there was a man named Ku and a woman named Hina. They lived near Pu'uma Eli'eli and did their best to provide for their family. 
It might have been easier to do if Ku was a more agreeable man, but he was known for his temper. When things went well, it was thanks to him, and when they didn't, it was because of Hina. She often shielded her children with her body, and so bore the evidence of his anger on her skin. After far too long, she realized that life with Ku would never get any better, and that her children needed her to make a drastic change. So, on the night of Mahialani, when the moon is at its fullest, she kissed her children, holding them tightly to herself, before tucking them in and laying down beside Ku. Once his breathing slowed into the usual rhythms of sleep, Hina slipped out from under his arm and made her way out of the house, taking the path up to Pu'uma Eli Eli. The night air was cool and pleasant on her fading bruises, and she felt lighter knowing that she was finally taking action. Her attention thus diverted, she missed hearing the heavy footfalls of Ku racing up behind her until it was almost too late. Filled with fear at the thought of yet another bout of violence, she summoned strength and courage from deep within and ran up the hill, praying and asking for assistance. Behind her, Ku ran steadily and shouted ugly, hateful things to her back. She thought to herself, I would give anything to be free of this torture, to free my kids from him, to just be free. Suddenly, the summit appeared before her with the moon just behind it, looking so full and bright, looking like her last best chance for freedom. A hopeful energy surged through her body and she threw herself into the air, hoping against hope for her freedom. With the sound of Ku's ranting still in her ears, she landed with a thud in the brightest place she'd ever seen. The moon! She'd made it! Everything from her waist up rested on the cool white surface while her hips and legs dangled in the air behind her. As she moved to pull herself up, she felt Ku's hand fasten itself onto her left ankle, felt the drag of his weight on her bones and heard him mutter, Oh no you don't, you just wait until I get you home. Her words came back to her, I would give anything to be free. And she cried out, You can only have what you can hold on to. With a powerful twist, she wrenched her ankle in a circle. With Ku's entire body weight hanging from it, that small movement was all it took, and Ku fell back to Ma Eli Eli with nothing more in his hands than her left foot. A small price to pay, Hina thought to herself, as she settled into her new home, giving thanks for being rescued from her oppressor. Nowadays, she keeps watch over us from the moon. Some say that she makes kappa there, while others say that she encourages plants to become filled with fruit to feed her children. Either way, maybe you'll see her too in the next full moon. Welcome back. I hope that I haven't lost you. You might be wondering what Ku and Hina and the Manuoku and Gaius and Gog have to do with each other. Maybe it'll help if I connect the dots a bit. Isn't it interesting that two separate cultures on opposite sides of the planet are connected through names for the same bird? Gaius, the warrior king and terror of Asia Minor, whose bloody reputation caused him to be numbered among Satan's henchmen, and Ku, god of aggression, and Warcraft, and toxic masculinity, 
can both be found in examining the genus and the Hawaiian name of the white noddy. Hmm, that's kind of amazing and also very random. The truly mind-boggling thing for me, though, is that the bird in question exhibits absolutely none of those characteristics. Let me explain. I usually disembark the express bus in front of the first Hawaiian bank building on King Street, between Bishop and Alakea. Despite some urban challenges, in the form of trash and evidence of, shall we say, overnight human habitation, it's a nice place to wait because of the manuoku. These all-white birds, with their dark rings of eyeshadow that make their eyes seem incredibly huge, are so graceful and beautiful. They seem to revel in swooping over the street and chasing each other between buildings. Their flight is so acrobatic and effortless that it fills me with a sense of joy. They exult in their ability to play and tease each other and have a great time like a bunch of cousins at a backyard paina. I also love when the moms and dads bring back shiny silver fish to feed to their fluffy babies. Before I forget, let me tell you, these birds don't build nests. They lay their solitary egg right on a tree branch, usually in a cup-shaped space, or maybe in the crook of some limbs, or sometimes on a window ledge. Minimalist, for sure. And each fluffy chick emerges from its egg after about five weeks. Over the course of the next six weeks, the parents will work all day to provide several meals. Sometimes, the breakfast of the day is a baby malolo, a flying fish, the ones with the pectoral fins, like little wings. And other times, it's a tiny blenny, or an owama, a baby goatfish. I once watched a fledgling hork down a huge fish over the course of several minutes. It was impressive, since the fish was about as long as the baby, and for a while, it couldn't quite close its beak. I think its parent was new to the whole sizing thing, and in its rush to feed a hungry kid, it brought what it could find. That baby didn't even blink, though, and it happily struggled to eat the entire meal. All I could think was, oh yeah, get it, kid. I think we have that sense, too, in our local families, the understanding that food is important, is deserving of respect, and should never be wasted. At each meal, whatever appears before you on your plate is a gift, and you should itadakimasu, eat it, and be grateful. There's a great blessing that every Hawaiian immersion student learns, which I am fairly sure comes to us via the Punanaleo preschools. They've done a huge share of the work to revitalize our language, and 2023 is their 40th anniversary, which is amazing. Oh my kai, congratulations! Here is the blessing. Iola no keki no ikama onauk o pu. Ima onanok o pu ike aloha o kamakua. E pu pa akai kakou o loa aho ia kakou kai a me ki aloha. The body lives because the stomach is filled. The stomach is filled because of the love of our parents. Let us share our food, for we have received both food and aloha. This beautiful prayer is said every day, all across the archipelago, reminding us that we are indeed blessed to have both food and aloha, and that each meal is a representation of our parents' love for us. In our chili and rice, in our lolo and poi, in our saimin and kamaboko fish cake, we can see the results of their sacrifices and their toil. And if we take a minute to look up from our plates and bowls and cups, 
we might also see their absolute joy in seeing us be fed with the fruits of their labor. I think this is the perfect time to tell you the other story of Ku. Since I gave a trigger warning for the first one, I suppose I should do the same for this one. Be advised that both famine and death are integral to the plot. Again, if you need to skip ahead, I'll meet you on the other side of the brief musical interlude. Ready, break. I said earlier that this story takes place in Kaneohe. However, I don't actually have proof of that. And really, part of the fun of Mo'olalo is adapting the well-known story to fit new purposes or specific places. So, let's take this opportunity to redeem He'eya and Pu'uma Eli'eli by situating it there, with Ku and Hina and their children not just surviving, but thriving because they have both food and aloha. One day, in the midst of plenty, a famine settles over the land, and despite everyone's best efforts to pray and beg for rescue from the oppression of hunger, it drags on and on and on. Finally, Ku can bear it no longer, and he gathers his beloved people around him, saying, My wonderful family, I love you so much. I'm going away now, and where I go, none of you may follow. But I promise to return to you, although it will be in a form that you do not yet know. No matter what, know that you are so loved. Take care of each other, and I will see you soon. With that mysterious speech, he leaves and walks to his family's favorite part of the forest. Upon arriving there, he clears the ground and digs a hole, praying the entire time. When the hole is deep enough, he enters into it head first and is transformed into a tall, stately tree with notched dark green leaves. By the time his curious family arrives, buds and shoots have appeared all along its branches. These buds ripen quickly in the most miraculous way to bring forth round, light green, bumpy-skinned fruits. They gather as many of these as they can carry and take them home, returning again and again to collect enough to feed everyone affected by the famine. In the days that follow, each time they gather to eat, they look around as they break open the baked fruit or dip their fingers into its light yellow poi, and as the steam rises, they smile in a bittersweet sort of way, knowing that their bellies are being filled by the love of their father. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. John chapter 6, 35 and 51. What have we been talking about today? On the trivial side, public transportation rocks. If you haven't ridden the Skyline yet, please give it a chance. I'll bet it comes in handy for holiday shopping. Instead of driving in circles around Pearl Ridge, you could park your car at one of the stations, shop up a storm, and then have a quick nap on the Skyline before driving home. Honolulu can be a great place to birdwatch if you are into Manuoku. 
While you're doing that, go try one or two or seven of the delicious items at Baker Dudes on Alakea. They make savory items as well as sweet ones, so there's something for everyone. And they take online orders for meetings. They're only open Tuesday through Friday, though, so good luck. On the not-so-trivial side, names are so incredibly important. Let's do everything we can to respect people by calling them by their names and learning the meaning of those names, looking for unexpected connections. Each of us has the capability of being a ruthless agent of destruction and a loving agent of creation. May we make good choices to effect positive change for ourselves, our families, and our community. Food is sacred, a sign of our ancestors' love, and a beautiful way to connect the earthly with the divine. Maybe this is why your mom always told you to slow down, chew, enjoy your food. Try it today with an extra dash of gratitude. I hope that my voice has been a friendly companion on your drive today. Whatever it is you've got ahead of you, may you do it well in honor of the ancestors we carry with us and for the greater glory of God. See you next time. Aloha. Ahui ho.